Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And we are continuing our series of mini episodes with Julia Franks, author of Over the Plain Houses and developer of the children's literacy app, Loose Cannon. Julia, how are you? I'm well. So nice to hear from you. So in this mini series that we've been doing, we've mostly been talking to sort of kid book authors about new books that they have out, which obviously is not your situation, but you're local and we know you and your book is amazing and you're doing awesome work for kids literacy in other ways. So we were thinking, first of all, we'll talk about your book because more people should read it anyway. But if you don't mind then talking about the other work that you're doing, I think a lot of people would be very interested in that right now, especially. Okay. (laughs) So your book, Over the Plain Houses, was just hugely well-received, 2016 Southern Book Prize, Townsend Prize for uh, Georgia Fiction, all kinds of things, but not everybody has heard of it. So would you mind telling people a little bit about it? Uh, Yes. So it's set in 1939 at the end of the Depression, and it's set in kind of the, well, quite a rural area in the mountains. And essentially, the setup for the book is that there's a couple who lives on this farm, and they're already isolated, but an outsider comes in, somebody basically who works for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and she has ideas for innovations, and also she strikes up a friendship with the wife, and so things go from there. And essentially, the husband, he gets the idea into his head that that his wife somehow has some kind of super supernatural powers or black magic going on. And this is sort of the way he explains events in his head. That, that, that's kind of the setup for the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it's one of those books that, first of all, you just cannot put down. Like it's an adult book and not a children's book, which is what we usually talk about. But a good grown-up book is always fantastic. And I always love the sort of supernatural tone to things. But I don't know. It feels sort of pertinent to our current situation where a lot of sort of, obviously, I'm not going to make any assumptions about your politics, but <laughs> but I feel like... Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I feel like a lot of especially religious conservatives are willing to sort of make these wild leaps and blame outlandish things just to sort of justify their own suspicions or their own behavior. And so I know this book came out years ago, but it feels super, super pertinent. Yeah, unfortunately it does. And unfortunately, you know, when I started writing it in 2008, it took me for seven, like six or eight years to write. But, um, you know, it was right when there were starting to be not just shootings, but shootings that were politically based or even in some cases religiously based. And my own parents, uh, their, their church in Knoxville, suffered a church shooting and the guy left a, you know, he left a manifesto. He left a letter saying, you know, why he did it. uh, It was a Unitarian church, which are, you know, sort of famously political and famously liberal. And, you know, he left this letter talking about all the groups that he didn't like. And, and, you know, that was back in 2008, that still felt like a rare thing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now it doesn't, which is, you know, all, all, you know, more the pity. So that was in my head, I think, when I started writing the book. This, you know, this idea of ideology and how it colors how we interpret events, you know, even the, the USDA worker, she's coming in, she's wanting, she's a progressivist. She wants to make things better. She wants to change things, but even her idea, ideology, you know, colors how she sees the facts. So, yeah. Uh, and, and I was, I was, but, but she's sort of open to change and open to being wrong. And, you know, Brodus, the husband is not. So, yeah, unfortunately, I felt like it was the political moment we were living in. And unfortunately, I feel like we're still living in that moment. <laughs> yeah, even more so. Actually. Uh, so. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So the worker who comes in, you said she's in with the USDA. Is she is that part of the Works Progress Administration at that point? No. So there were a lot of um, I mean, they would have, I think, probably been working hand in hand, but. With the USDA, there were a lot of people who came in and worked with farmers, and women came in and worked with farmers' wives. And so you have these women, like, you know, coming in and and teaching people how to do canning and how to make mattresses and how to cook with electricity and how to, like, use cabinets and all kinds of stuff that we would think, well, of course, everybody knows how to do that. But and and eat. They were making, you know, changes that turned out to be far-reaching, you know, because they were also bringing in their own ideas and, and they were this vector from the outside world. Yeah, Jenny, I, I know you haven't read it yet, but I think you would actually really enjoy it. It's it's just an interesting sort of little portrait of, I don't know, just like an old time, like so late 30s, but just sort of what might have happened when things started to get even the slightest bit progressive. And it's just interesting because it's so, so plausible, right? It seems outlandish. The story seems outlandish, but then you're like, no, that would absolutely happen. And I guess I won't say anymore because I don't want to ruin the end for you. But (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We're living in the time of the outlandish. Yeah, we so are. (laughs) You said it's set in the mountains. Is it in Appalachia? Yes, in Western North Carolina. And, And, you know, it's based on a, not based on a real life couple, but it's based on a, we bought this house at the time, or this abandoned farm at the time, and that farm had been owned by this couple in the early 20th century, and um, their house was still full of like all their stuff and everything, and um, so it's based on it's based on how I imagined this couple. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I fictionalized many aspects, <laughs> but to be honest, some of the things I've heard were even more strange than. I put in the book. You know, I don't point, doubt it. <laughs> you can't put things into a book because nobody will believe them. You know? So now I want to know what some of those things are. You, you would like it. You would, you'd be all into it. <laughs> the things that aren't in the book. Oh, <laughs> so not in the book. So people used to, there's one thing people used to save hair back then. A lot of, and, and in the 19th century, as well. we, we've actually talked about this before. <laughs> With the Victorian hair saving thing, right? Yeah, with brooches right. and, and yes. And so apparently, the wife uh, had saved like all her the you know hair from her hairbrushes, and she had made like this very thick braid, and she had red hair, 
and she had woven all this hair together and she had saved it. And people said, it's as thick as your arm, you know? And um, so when we bought this property, when people found out we bought the property, townspeople would come up to us and they would say, why did you find this? Did you find that? And at least three different people asked me if I had found the braid. (laughs) (laughs) And they would tell me like, where to look, you know? And, uh, and I never did find it. I, I, I don't know. I sort of hope that her grandkids or somebody kept it, you know, if it was that important to her, I would hate to think that, you know, here's this perfect stranger coming along and, you know, taking this thing that really represents in some ways her life, you know, I don't know. So, so that, but that's not the book because it, it, you know, I mean, so many things about human experience are so, outlandish you know <laughs> and another thing that's not in the book is people told us that uh i've never heard anybody i've never heard of this anywhere before but people in town told us when the, the, when this couple they walked to church uh, the woman walked three paces in front of the man carrying the bible like a platter like she was announcing him Ooh. and uh, yeah <laughs> And, you know, I mean, they were really old-fashioned. She wore a bonnet until 1973. I mean, like a little house with a prairie bonnet until 1973. Wow. So none of that's in the book. None of that's in the book. It's too, I mean, (laughs) you can't put everything in a book. But, you know, this couple, they just captured my imagination. And so many people in town told me so many stories, which may or may not be true, but you know, they were kind of legendary and they had been gone since 1973, but there are plenty of people who remember them. Oh, so interesting. And so entertainingly weird. You have to love it, actually. Well, it just makes me, it makes me think about the things that I do on a daily basis, like what could be considered odd, like 30, (laughs) 40 years later, you know, if found out. So I know that you're also working on a web application called Loose Cannon, which I had not heard of until you told me about it. But when I went in and checked it out, it seems just amazing, right? So it it organizes and tracks free choice reading for schools. Is that right? Yeah. Independ- I mean, we might call it independent reading or book club reading. I don't, I, you, you guys probably know this because you have kids, but, you know, I mean... English class does not look the same as it did when you and I were in school. You know, it's, everybody's not always reading the same book. A lot of times people are, kids are on their own independent reading journey or they're doing book clubs. And then sometimes everyone's reading the same book. Anyway, that's great. That is a great innovation that sort of started in primary schools and, and sort of leaked upward. So that's terrific, but it's also hard if you're the teacher. It's (laughs) hard to keep track of it all and like be the person recommending every book and, you know, remembering, you know, where where every child is. And um, especially if you're teaching middle school or high school, when you have, you might have, you know, four or five classes or six classes. So, you know, so we are a digital tool that helps organize that. And we're kind of, we're really set for like fifth grade and up. Mm-hmm. mainly because at that point the tracking becomes a little bit more of an issue, you know, because, um, you know, somebody eighth grade, 
might have read that book last year in seventh grade. Um, so anyway, that's what we do. And it's pretty exciting because while I love, love, love writing, I feel like there's already so many amazing books out there. You know, like if I wanted to do something important, it feels like it's more important to get to help get kids reading than it is to put another book out there, you know, which is basically something I do for my own satisfaction. You know? right. <laughs> so, well, I mean, we don't need, we don't need more books. We need more readers. That's what I'm trying to say, but not very succinctly. I guess. <laughs> well, and I like, I like the facet of it about sort of being able to recommend, right? So if a whole class reads a book in seventh grade, like everybody's sort of dragging their heels and you've got two or three really energetic readers of it. But then the next year, you know, you have five kids saying, oh, I remember that book from last year. That was actually really good. And they can tell their friends or their friends can sort of search by that, right? Sure. And of course, I mean, y'all know, they care more about what their friends like than they do what their mom or their teachers recommending, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, what, what their peers have read and what the peers recommend. And, um, so we think it makes the teacher's job easier and it makes it more fun for kids. But also, you know, I mean, kids read books for the same reasons, kids choose books for the same reasons that we do because somebody they respect has recommended it to them, you know, a friend or something like that. And there's, you know, that's a, that's a really invaluable resource, you know, that kind of energy where kids are excited about books. And I feel like if we could, if we harness that, and we reuse it and channel it, that feels like the most important thing to drive reading in the future. I mean, you know, reading's in trouble at every, at every level, but especially once kids become teenagers, reading is in trouble. Mm-hmm. So how do you drive that? And it's probably not going to be teachers giving more assignments. It's probably going to be, it's probably going to be kids having more flexibility and more, you know, lateral connection with other kids. I have to think that in the the upper grades, an online way to do the things you're talking about, to recommend and to re- and to track and to sort of interact, is going to be invaluable. We would love to see schools, a lot of schools incorporate loose cannon. And then if there are more closures, they already have something in place. They already have this uh, social media application in place whereby kids can talk to each other about books. And it doesn't have, doesn't have to be every single thing coming from the teacher. You know, kids want to talk to each other about books. They want to have that peer-to-peer conversation. You know, we didn't, we didn't, build loose cannon for school closures, but it happens it happens to be, you know, a useful tool for that. There's technology that's kind of technology whereby every child is at the computer sort of going on their own path and doing their own thing. And there's other technology that capitalizes on student to student interaction and it's not just a child interacting with the computer. Anyway, that's what we do. So, yeah. Awesome. Kids can read the books offline or whatever. They can read the books can come from their library. They can come from anywhere, but 
the conversation about the books can be online mm. or it can be offline. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Loose Cannon sounds really amazing. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us for our interview with Julia Franks, the author of Over the Plain Houses and the developer of Loose Cannon, and that's Canon as in literary canon, so C-A-N-O-N, a literacy app for students designed to create conversation around books. You can learn more about the app at loosecanon.com, and that's L-O-O-S-D-C-A-N-O-N.com. Thank you. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.